Hi, Mohammed. I'm just getting my stand up the right height. Yeah, the top is part of this live. Like it. It's still a bit higher. Yeah, I think a bit lower. Yes, two more. Uh, a little, a little bit. Uh, yeah, just be like your head should be in the middle of the screen. I think. Alright, maybe one more. One more book. Yeah. Uh, great. Do you hear me well? Yes, you're loud and clear. Okay. So I'm uh, hearing you well as well. Uh, great. So let's start the live. Uh, for I mean, today we are grateful to have uh, Professor Richard Kolov, NYU Kurant Institute. So uh, I think uh, we had several, I mean, a few actually uh, live before with Professor Elenshi of CMU and Professor Bill Kastarch of UMB so far, and we have some future ones essentially in future weeks. And we try to get, uh, I mean, the very expert in the field like Professor Richard Cole, that like we are talking about game theory today. And we will go and discuss uh, materials I mean, this is like more a friendly discussion in a sense that we are talking about our lives. That's important. I believe that, I mean, you cannot, uh, always it's good like the successful people to see what are the scenarios, what are the nice events that they had it. And I believe that like any person, like any successful person had actually some very nice stories in his or her life that can be very, inspiring for others. That's the reason that we always start essentially with the, I mean, personal life, talk about it, and then we will talk about the research stuff. Uh, we talk about high levels, and for some of them, we will go actually deep, and we try to even nail down some research problems or the ones that are actually active, very active in the field. So try to have essentially balance for uh, lots of uh, an audience that we have a diverse set of people that we have. And all this will be available, I mean, here at Instagram, at my Instagram, and also at uh, YouTube, uh, and other places. Just search there and you will find it essentially. Try to make it available everywhere. Uh, great. So uh, I think uh, without any uh, further delay, uh, let's, uh, I mean, start, uh, I mean, introducing Professor uh, Richard uh, Cole. Uh, I mean, uh, Charles, actually, he's very uh, senior in the field. He got uh, his bachelor in mathematics from Oxford University in 1972. It's like one of the most famous, uh, actually, universities, like in, both inside and outside the US, and especially in UK, of course. And then uh, he got his PhD in uh, 1982 from uh, Cornell in computer science. We will talk actually a little bit about the comparison between UK system and US system also in these things. We try to we have a nice stories about lots of topics. And by the way, I think in one hour, I mean the um, Instagram may disconnect us because they have a limitation of one hour like Zoom and uh, 
Google Hangout, we will reconnect essentially. And the one that uh, I will put it on YouTube, it would be just one file essentially. So you don't need to, if the YouTube one, you can do it continuously. And again, it is good. I mean, if you go, uh, that's another thing that we, <clears throat> I like about Instagram, that there is no slide or anything. So it is in some sense, if you have a YouTube and if you have unlimited uh, uh, data, then you can just, when you go and drive, I'm doing it. Don't look at it, that's dangerous, but you can listen to it. That's very good <laughs> things. I'm doing that and it's like, it's like a podcast in that sense. And good. Yeah. So uh, yeah, he got it, uh, 1982, his PhD from Cornell and he discussed about uh, this math versus computer science and Oxford versus Cornell and UK versus US. And then he has been actually in the Courant Institute. If you, I mean, this is, uh, Courant Institute is one of the most famous places essentially in applied math and uh, related areas like computer science. And since then he has been there essentially. So I think now almost uh, 40 years, correct? Yeah, correct. So I believe that they should have some kind of, I mean, ceremony for you for your 40th year. <laughs> actually, they, if they have not done it, they should have done it. This is exactly the 40th year and that is actually important actually to have it. We encourage and invite you to have that. Uh, <clears throat> great. So uh, I think uh, let's, I mean, uh, start with Richard. So uh, like, uh, I think first, do you want to uh, maybe mention a little bit about, I mean, your personal life, like your family, how many children, what do they do essentially, and then we will go to Okay, so I have. What that you want essentially share? I have I have two children, and I, I live with, actually in the place I am with with my wife. My children are grown; they're, they're both about thirty years old. Um, uh, do they do science? No, no. I was about to, my, my so actually, both my children when they were in high school, um, actually. Well, my older one, I no longer remember with my younger one. They're, they're old enough. High school is a while ago. Um, my older one took part in one of these science research classes, and she went and worked in a biology lab with someone in medical school, uh, actually in Philadelphia. I, we, we're, we're in the New York area. Um, and she discovered this wasn't for her, which is fine. Um, she's a budding academic at this point, but in, in the field of history. Uh, so, yeah, so I mean, that's actually interesting. This is uh, a little bit, I mean, we are talking about parenting stuff as well, essentially. So, and uh, this is the one that I think for people are so interesting. I think in US, because of the different, uh, I mean, there are lots of, uh, I mean, social media, and I will say, I don't know, different environment, they uh, may have more effect than parents. I heard this one from <laughs> lots of great scientists, essentially. Uh, actually, there was, uh, I was talking with Hinton in the ceremony that he got actually a Turing Award. And uh, he brought uh, his uh, daughter and said that actually his daughter now, maybe only now appreciate how much I have done work for the science. Maybe before didn't have that. So that's, that's interesting, essentially. So I think we can uh, talk about it. But uh, uh, let's talk about, I mean, yourself. So when you were a child, so, uh, did you have any role model? And you were at, uh, I believe, I mean, you were at uh, UK at that time, essentially. Did you have any role model? Did you want to be a scientist? Did you, I mean, imagine that you want to be a professor at that time? So actually, just to elaborate on my childhood a little bit, I, I spent five years in France when I was a small child, 
that's where I began um, go, going to school. Um, later on, we came back to England, um, for, and I was there from the age of nine. Um, so I'm not aware of any particular role model. I, I certainly had um, inspiring teachers in one way or another, but I wouldn't describe them as role models. One, one thing I would say is I came from a very bookish family in, in the sense of lots of books in the house and reading was always very much a thing. Uh, so I was certainly sort of in an academic style environment uh, but uh, my, my, my parents were, were not academics, though I do have uh, other relatives who were, were and are academics. Yeah. Um, um, oh, go on. Go ahead, yeah. Go ahead, I will add after that. Um, so what was the rest of your question, actually? Well, you better remind me. I've did you imagine, I mean, that you want to be a scientist oh, and become a professor? Not at all. I, so from some age, and I couldn't tell you when, I sort of assumed I was going to university, but what would happen beyond that, I had no idea. And in fact, from a fairly early point, I knew I was going to study mathematics. What early, like which year? I couldn't say, but by the time I was 14, maybe. 14, uh, so um, did you have any other uh, essentially job, like maybe you want to be a pilot or other things? Not that I recall. <laughs> yeah. So I think at least you don't recall any other job than scientists and somehow was the first job that you were maybe. I mean, I think you mentioned that you decided to go to university. You At that time, you well, didn't it, I mean, decided is maybe not, this was just the natural track. My parents had been to university. Some of my grandparents, two of my grandparents had been to university. In fact, one was a professor. Um, so it was kind of the unquestioned assumption that this is what would happen. Um, so the, and my parents must have instilled this, but in a, you know, a fairly light manner. There was no sense that, uh, that I felt that they were steering me or anything of that sort. Uh, uh, great. So, uh, I mean, do you feel any difference between now and then, essentially, especially now that you are in U.S.? Do you see that the people are pushing more or less? What's your well, opinion, essentially? I, so my impression of from my children's experience is that there's many students, many high school students feel a, a lot of pressure um, to, to, to get into university and to get into the best university as given by whatever rankings. Um, and I suspect, you know, well, a fair bit of it comes from each other, but also some of it comes from parents. And I would say, you know, while we certainly had high expectations for our, for our children, we, we certainly never tried to push them to, to do, at least as far as I'm aware, I'm not maybe the best person to say, we never tried to push them in one direction or, or another. 
Yeah, I think I mean you had like three generation. Your like your childhood, your children, and now I think now even they are thirty. So that may be new thing. So you have seen all three generation, and like some of these questions that we may ask may compare all of them essentially. So, uh, so that is uh, interesting. So, uh, like then, uh, how was your grade like in math or? I mean, there was. I, I was it. I think there was some computer science at that time as well. Uh, not. Uh, yeah, he's like. <laughs> so, and there was. I was completely unaware of computer science when I was in high school. I mean, I knew that there were computers, but I knew nothing about how they operated. There were no. Well, I don't want to say there were no. Certainly. Oxford did not have a computer science degree at that time, yeah. um, so it, it was not in sort of the realm of possibility, and it wasn't a subject that ever occurred to me at that point. Did you have a computer, a personal computer? Like when was the first? No, 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 they 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 were later. So the first, I don't know, the first affordable apples and PCs were maybe. In the mid to late seventies, these were very. So we didn't have anything at home. Um, yeah, so my my first touching of a computer was of a mainframe. When I, well, not actually touching it, but using a computer was a mainframe at Oxford. Um, so did it have a keyboard, or there was some kind of punch? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> so. There wasn't a computer science degree, and computing was not part of the mathematics degree. So it was a sort of extracurricular activity. And so I, I took—I think I took a couple of courses, uh, quote unquote courses. They were one-hour-long lectures in which we were told the rudiments of a programming language and then invited to get to. Now, because we weren't really part. Of a degree program, we had the most pathetic resources available to us. So at that time, you were using punch cards. Yeah. And if you were in good shape, you had a sort of typewriter to um, to, to type the punch cards or to punch them. However, th these were in short supply. So us um, non-regular students, what we were given was hand punches. These had a dial. And for each character you wanted to punch, you had to turn the dial, and then punch that single character. So as you can imagine, one only wrote very short programs. Yeah. So that I mean, actually, I think that is good for the people that they know they are using their cell phone. You don't you have the touch screen and everything. So I, like I remember the time that it was like DOS was the main thing, not Windows at that time. But I think you were like the. I don't know, 30 years, 20, 30 years before me. So then, at that time, I think I didn't uh, essentially had uh, any experience with punch card. But I think that's the thing that I sure that actually uh, you uh, tried it at that time. Uh, great. So I think. Uh, and by the way, I mean the audience. If you have any questions, please ask. I mean we try to also add some of them. Uh, The discussion that we have. So that's the old time. So then we. So when did you start uh, Oxford? So I went to Oxford in 1975. Um, English degrees are typically three years long. 
because they're fairly specialized. So my mathematics degree was 100% mathematics. This is not like a US major. So in, in three years, you can study a lot of mathematics. Yeah, and I think it's for actually one of, still I'm in one of the best places essentially in math as well, essentially. Um, so uh, that's, I mean, what courses did you take at that time? Like, is there any course that particularly essentially made you interested about some of the research life later? Mm, not that I'm aware of. Or, um, um, I mean, it, it was a, to some extent a general mathematics education in pure, both pure and applied mathematics. Um, yeah. I mean, I, in general, like uh, math, I mean, uh, like combinatories is, might be closest essentially to computer science. So like if, I essentially started with combinatorics and graph theory and then became more interested essentially also like in computer science. Uh, but uh, at that time, there was no courses also in computer science, am I right? Did you have any courses even? So there were, there were courses, so I took some one or two courses in numerical analysis, which you could also view as scientific computing. Um, there were courses in operations research, I believe. Um, and I, I'm not sure if I took those, but I do remember lectures on network flow, for instance. Yeah. Uh, uh, I believe they were essentially like early 900, some of these algorithms that we had. Or am I right? Early? Uh, in, in, no, no, it's like nine. So when was like the, this, for example, I mean, different uh, flow algorithms that have been invented. I don't remember the year. So the earliest ones, probably at least the 1960s. 1960s. I would think, like Dynex algorithm. Because I think you need to have algorithm and the algorithm was around 1960 essentially. Because before for, maybe for mathematicians, algorithms was not the, because you could always try the whole possibilities and get the optimum solution. So the fact that you need polynomial time algorithms and fast algorithms, that was, I will say, the most, I mean, the main contribution of computer science. And well, of course, there the were I mean, linear programming was a very early algorithm, I think, 1950s. And mm -hmm. so there was certainly a, a practical understanding that you needed speed. Um, but the formalization and, and the focus on asymptotic complexity only st really started at probably late 60s, early 70s. And I, I remember, I think it was from Hopcross Turing Award lecture, though it might have been somewhere else I saw it, a comment on how algorithms work changed. So the time he, he started, what you'd have is someone would design an algorithm and say, look, it performs better on these examples. And someone would come back and say, here's my new algorithm and it performs better on these different examples. And this really wasn't very satisfactory. And then- uh, it's Still the same thing is going on. But I mean, so this was a story from uh, John Hopcraft, correct? He got a Turing award. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. You know, I haven't gone back and checked this, so, so it's yeah, from it's memory. To the approximately <laughs> things like that. Yeah, so that's actually very interesting that, uh, like, uh, this, uh, <coughs> still, I mean, there are lots of conferences, there are still, especially, like, in the ML field, and there are 
lots of people that are publishing they just said that my algorithm is good but the data that they are doing is some subset of the data and in some sense that goes in heuristics in heuristic you need that's the only way maybe you can essentially publish you cannot say that work for everything because then you have a proof in some sense so by definition in some sense if you work more applied stuff you can have some critical examples and solve on them but not on everything or at least there is no proof, no proof for everything uh, great so i think uh, that is uh, good then uh, after that so i think uh, you got in uh, 78 you were uh, uh, 78 you got your bachelor mm-hmm. okay that's and right you went to a uh, cornell essentially for four years what's your advisor Hopcroft. Oh, okay. Okay. Like I read actually lots of his book when I was not even undergrad when I was preparing for this informatics Olympiad. That was like some of his not the original one. There had some copies of that. <laughs> At that time, we had some kind of uh, copies, not the actual one, but they were great actually. And for uh, good. So uh, then, uh, so. Uh, at that time there was a computer science degree at Cornell am i right or that's right yes yes but probably just started like a few years ago well it probably i don't know it's been going for maybe 10 years at that point in some fashion uh, great so uh, why do you decide to go from oxford I mean, to cornell from us um, yeah it was partly on more on a whim i would say than um a carefully considered decision um so on the one hand the ordinary job market in in britain at that time was not very appealing um it was not a particularly good economic time in the uk and actually what what happened to me i was in the america the the previous summer visiting an uncle of mine who was a professor and at some point he suggested to me that i should think about pursuing a computer science phd which had not occurred to me before then so if it wasn't for that uh um sort of fortuitous uh su- suggestion i certainly wouldn't have started a phd at that point maybe later who can say and as to why to come to america it just had a somewhat different feel that than, than britain did it seemed to be more open to opportunity and exploration now you know this is this may have been uh, i'm not saying this was a necessarily a reality but it was the impression i had and it, it it felt quite different when i came here i think that is important like for the i mean like some events i think happens in the our lives i mean everyone's life that it may change essentially the whole direction like like for me essentially for me uh, like i remember uh, like i started essentially like computer science based on i mean i, I was good at math uh, but at some point i saw i mean in the tv some essentially previous team like in iran that i got i was born essentially like olympias is a big thing actually olympias are big things almost everywhere now there's lots of computer scientists that you know see essentially they had actually competed in these competitions and they talked like 
for example, with uh, Professor Ellen Shi, and I didn't know actually that she also was involved in China, and of course China going to the final team is much harder. Uh, but uh, so it, at that time, I just I remember that I saw a TV essentially that these people came from the international competition, and there were lots of I mean they were talking with them, they were interviewing for them, and that was essentially the starting point for, for me that why I can't be like them. That was. I think that's probably one of the main things that I decided I want to go into science and essentially compete. And of course, it's not the easy life. I think everyone knows that these like competitions are generally, I mean, a lot of pain, but of course, a lot of enjoyment. But I will say enjoyment probably the fraction is much less than the actual uh, pain that you need to do it for competition. But anyhow, it's great. I liked it. And, uh, uh, great. So I think that uh, visit that you had it actually that summer, it was very important one, I will say, that you decided. And uh, what was uh, your uncle, Espelby? He, he was a professor of mathematics. mathematics. His, his field was relativity. Uh, okay. So, but uh, he, I think he had a good idea about uh, computer science. And, yeah. Well, so at that time, there, there'd been a boom in the 1960s and maybe through the early 70s in, in science and, and math um, coming from the, the Apollo space program, right? The US invested a lot, but the expansion was finished by, by 1975. And the, the word in the mathematics field was, if you wanted to do something academic that was mathematics, like go into computer science. That was the expanding field. Yes. And I think it, it is expanding almost <laughs> constantly since then, essentially. Uh, that essentially became the great field uh, uh, by now. Uh, good. So then uh, you came uh, to Cornell. So uh, like, how do you compare like the UK system versus US system? So, I mean, my, my experience of the UK system was at Oxford University, which is... Um, and along with Cambridge, are somewhat special in terms of the resources they have and how they teach. So I mean, this is sort of interesting contrast, certainly to, to America, but also to other British universities. They run what's called a tutorial system. And the way this works is you, you meet with your you know, prof professor, your teacher, or your teachers in two-on-one -on -one sessions, one hour long, once a week. Um, so the professor has to meet with pairs of students. And the, at least the way it works in mathematics, at least for me, was the professor would say, read this material for, for next week and think, think about some, some problems. And then you, at the, the meeting, which was called a tutorial, you, if you had any questions, you could ask them. If you didn't have any questions, he'd have you or she would ha have you work through problems in front of them. And so uh, that, that was in Oxford or in Cornell? In Oxford. So that was the, my experience as a British, uh, as a British undergraduate. Uh, so no, no assignments as such and very much self-paced. Yeah, it was, you learned more quickly, then you, you got through more stuff. Then I came to graduate school in America, and this, this, this began with courses, and it was much more regimented. Right? You had courses, you had homework, 
you you had you had uh, regular exams, and this was graduate school, so it was to, to me a little little bit of a, a surprise. Uh, yeah, so I think that's actually interesting because this type of uh, thing that you were talking about, like in Oxford, is more like the flipped classes that still the people, some professors are doing that they are asking just go on essentially watch the videos from my courses and then come, we have like one session to talk about it. It's like ask questions and answer beyond that. I don't know how good, I mean like, so there like when, so you were with one professor, you took some kinds of course in a sense that you should put the material. And then you had, I think two one hours to meet with that professor in a week. So with one, so you, you would be doing several subjects simultaneously. Um, so we might be doing algebra with one tutor and I don't know, differential equations with, with another tutor. And so the minimum rate was two tutorials a week and the maximum was may, maybe four, uh, but I would say two to three was more typical. Um, and so the, the, I, Oxford and for that matter Cambridge are, are run on a college system. And so the, the, the university is divided into about 30 colleges. These are residential units, not uh, subject units. And at least for the major subjects, each college will teach that subject. So there were two tutors in my college who taught mathematics and they handled the bulk of our training, but for specialized subjects, they might uh, send us out to a tutor at another college. And of course they would take in students. Uh, so uh, uh, do they still have the same uh, things or it has been changed since then? I think it's basically the same. So let me say in other subjects which are not problem driven. So if you're working in a field like history or politics, the basic unit was an essay. You would write one essay a week. And then your task would be to read it out to the tutor who would critique it or discuss it with you during that hour session. I see. That's actually, I mean, interesting. Uh, that's, uh, I mean, you could write proofs. I mean, still, I think I'm doing with my students sometimes, I start, write one proof that I can read it carefully and give you the comment. So in that sense, it is similar. So it's more like advisor advising than actual courses in some sense. To some degree. To some um, degree. It was certainly, it depends on students being well-motivated because there's very little beyond embarrassment. And of course, that's a, that can be quite a powerful force to, 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 to make you work. The, 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 in fact, all, all the grading uh, for, the, for the degree was done in end of year exams. There was no assessment, no formal assessment of work, no, no required work during the school year. And which one you like better, the coursework or that one? So if you want to. So for me, the I like that one more. I'm you know, now as a as a professor. Well, certainly in terms of interacting with students, it's much more fun to do one on one rather than rather than lecturing and, and assigning homeworks. But it's enormously labor intensive, so it's not really practical. Um, and I suspect for 
many students having a more regimented or a more set sequence of tasks makes their time management and motivation easier. But that's not really for me to say. Uh, yeah, I think like, yeah, this is like the way that I think in the US we are doing, we have both, um, like essentially the advisor advisory that is one-on-one versus the courses that we teach. I mean, to me, it seems both, I mean, might be needed essentially for the different applications essentially. But uh, yeah, that's interesting. No, no, you have done it four years at Cornell is John Hopcroft, like, uh, he's like a famous a computer scientist. And as I mentioned, he has actually a Turing Award, which is equivalent of uh, Nobel, in compute, uh, Nobel in computer science. So, uh, there, so how about the experience there? So what was your PhD thesis about? And did you continue Some, working on that? I mean, not in a... I can, it was in the area of algorithm analysis. So yes, I continued in algorithm analysis, but I didn't pursue um, what, what I worked on in my, in my thesis any, any further. Um, what was the topic? So it was titled Two Problems in Graph Theory, which were somewhat unconnected. What one was... Um, uh, Edge an algorithm for edge coloring of bipartite graphs. Uh, and the other was a, a study of um, graph automorphism. So you, so the, the, what, what is that? So the problem is yeah, related to graph. To define it, I think these are, so because these are like basic problems. And I mean, we talk about coloring previous time with Professor Wilkasaj, but these are fundamental problems. I think that we are more, going to more researchy type of thing, I think it might be good to define it. Okay, so let, let me back up a little bit. So the bipartite graph, the way to think of this is you have two sets of vertices, a left set and a right set, and all the edges go from the left to the right, or the right to the left. There are typically undirected edges. And now your task is to color the, each of the edges in the graph in such a way that all the edges coming out of any one vertex have different colors. And of course, what you want to do is to use the smallest number of colors possible. And it turns out with, if you've got a bipartite graph of degree D, that's the, number of ed the maximum number of edges coming out of any vertex, you can actually do a coloring with just D, D colors. Obviously you can't use less than D colors. Um, and so then the whole issue is to do it efficiently. Okay. And the starting point of it was, uh, of this work was a paper Hopcroft pointed me to, which had some performance bound. Um, I forget exactly what, what it was by Hal Gabo and some others. I'm, I'm sorry, I no longer recall yeah, uh, no, his co-authors. <laughs> um, problem as that, um, don't. And it's hard for me. So the, the, the interesting trick, I don't know if you want me to go into this, with, with um, graph coloring is what you do, the, the main thing is to find what are called Euler tors or Euler paths in the graph. So imagine you just start walking, following edges one after another. And what you want is either 
um, to come back to your starting point and thereby form a, a, a loop, a cycle, or you go to a, ver to a vertex and there are no further edges that you haven't used before. And what you do with the cycle is you know that pairs of adjacent e edges have to have different colors. So you take the cycle and you put all the even edges in one part and all the odd edges in the other part. And you, you can then, with some more trickery, um, to some extent treat the, these subsets of edges recursively. Uh, and the, the, Go ahead. Okay, so there, I don't think I'm going to say any more about it because it's a long time since I've thought about uh, this, yeah. this algorithm. I think we are talking about, so we talk about bipartite graph essentially, that's essentially two parts and all edges are in between. Actually, this is something that you will talk more about it about when we talk about matching market. So bipartite graph actually makes, I will say, they make billions of dollars nowadays. That's the whole thing between advertisers essentially and advertisement slots and uh, that's the, one of the like uh, one of the uh, current main applications of bipartite graph that we talk more about them and graph coloring also is a very important one and this was the approach that we try like an algorithm we try to solve some problem using some other problem so here we want to do the graph coloring such that any two edges that they share as share one vertex they should have a, a different color so we are using Eulerian tour is the way that, has, uh, that you want to <clears throat> find a tour in a graph such that without uh, removing the pen out of like uh, paper, you want to go and uh, through all the edges of the graph. That's a typical thing as a puzzle that the, I mean, children, they may do that. We are doing even more of them when we are researchers. And that's a really important one. And this is, we are doing some kinds of reductions from graph coloring. That actually is a good thing to think about it. That's a way to think about algorithms. Like uh, some people ask me to talk more about it. So like one of the most important things in, in algorithm is that you should know different components, different algorithms. Uh, when you get a new problem, sometimes you need to use the combination of previous ones actually to solve it. So in some sense, you can consider that the Eulerian tour is some procedure that you need to solve Eulerian tour. Now you want to combine that one maybe with more ideas and maybe call this procedure a few times such that you will color the edges of the graph. So that's interesting. And if you want to design new algorithms, that's important actually that you will do this thing. And great. So I think after that, that was the, I mean, you have done your PhD, then you uh, decided that you want to apply. Uh, have you been sure at that time that you want to go to industry or you want, like 82 essentially, I think there were some industry on computer science, but maybe not uh, too much. Oh, become a oh no, no, there, there, were, there was lots. There were, it was just different. So at that time, IBM was the computing company. Um, there was one giant company, it was IBM, and they had, and maybe still have, a huge research um, center, actually just a little bit out, outside New York City. In New York town? Yes, yes. The uh, Watson Labs yeah, in, I in New York, New York town. 2002 there, essentially. So that's the... Uh, 
Uh, at that time, like, it was great. They had, like, I think comparing IBM versus Microsoft. Both, uh, I, was Microsoft present at that time as well? As a, I don't remember when Microsoft started their research labs. I, I just don't. But as a company, they exist. That's oh, yes. Microsoft was started in the early 80s, but you know, it took a while for them to become a re really big company. Big company. The, the other big company in research um, at, at that time in the early 80s and actually going on for the next 25 years was Bell Labs. At that time, there was one phone company and Bell Labs was its research arm. Yeah, actually, I'm glad that I also I was working at AT&T, which was one of the branches of Bell Labs. They, at some point, they needed to, I mean, uh, because of this antitrust stuff, they needed to break down the company. And two famous ones was AT&T Research Lab and Bell Labs that they continued. And I was happy that I was also at AT&T, actually, for several years. And it was like a great environment to do research. These companies, they are changing. Like IBM was very famous. I think nowadays, maybe a bit... I mean, uh, behind some other more uh, giant companies now, like AT&T and Bell Labs, the same, I will say. And that's, but Microsoft and Apple, I think both of them are still continuing to be great company. And these are like actually the largest company in the world, I believe, like in terms of even uh, if you don't, I think there's one oil company, but if you don't exclude that, still these two companies are the two big ones. So in some sense, they started from their hand. They, very successful. I mean, IBM and I mean, AT&T are both exist, but maybe not advancing that much that these other companies uh, have done it. Uh, great. So did you decide to, uh, so uh, like, did you have any options, I mean, to go industry and do, did you want to do research or do you want to do more uh, like industry? Yeah. Oh, I, w I certainly was not particularly qualified for, uh, let's say, applied engineering work, though no doubt I could have learned. Um, so the decision is I applied for both industry positions and, uh, um, and university positions, and it was just uh, what was seemed like the best choice. And I certainly don't have regret. I have no regrets about the choice I made. It, it worked out very well. Um, let me just mention a big difference. At the time, the American universities we're graduating maybe 200 PhDs a year in computer science. Now, nowadays, the number is maybe 2,000 a year or a little under 2,000 a year. So it was really, I'm not sure whether I was the seller or the buyer, but anyway, for the aspiring, uh, the new PhDs, it was a very easy job market compared to what it is now. Yeah, I think, I mean, still there are lots of needs also, like in hiring that we are doing. Maybe some areas a bit more hot topic than others, like ML, and <laughs> even some part of ML more like a reinforcement learning or uh, this kind of deep learning. Because again, the competition partly come from the industry as well, because industry wants to get higher these people, so there are less people that go to academia, so in that sense. But yeah, some areas it might be, I mean, more competition essentially and less positions. Uh, but so at that time you decided that you want to go to NYU, and uh, was current exist current like essentially uh, so it was like it's a famous. Yeah. So actually, the the history of current is is interesting. Um, it uh, 
was started because of Nazi Germany. So Courant was the head of the Math Institute at Heidelberg in Germany. And he, he was Jewish and was fired essentially as soon as the Nazis came to power. And this happened quickly enough that, that he left Germany and after a couple of years was hired by NYU and in some sense eventually recreated, of course, in a more American form, the, the institute that, he, that he'd been the head of and sort of very much put NYU on the map as a center for mathematics. Yeah, it's still, I think, one of the best places to do oh, yeah, if you search. So this is like the, the current institute. And the combination that was also interesting, like the, there you had like computer scientists I mean, and applied mathematics and mathematics. So in some sense, I have seen the same thing like at MIT, like CSAIL was somehow like that as well, to some extent, that like different people from different fields are coming and Generally, when you collaborate with different people in different fields, you can make much more impact in the field. That's the one actually is the, related to the next topic that you are talking about, the computer science, essentially. If we do a bit more research, we may come back to life again. We are alternating between them. So, uh, so here we talk more about the research stuff, uh, and mainly about algorithmic game theory. Here is the area that computer scientists, I would say maybe learn more economics and become this new field came. And as I mentioned, uh, I will mention this idea of uh, advertisement, this, like advertisement auctions or online auctions in general that currently makes companies like trillion dollar worth, like Google, think about Google essentially or Facebook. Facebook came a bit down recently, but I'm sure that it will go up. And lots of other things, all based on online auctions which is indeed the combination of uh, economics and computer science. Because there you have the auctions and the concept that we will consider it from economics long time ago. At the same time, you have algorithms, you have rendering time, you have time complexity, you want to have fast algorithms, these are all computer science. And, and of course, the combination of also more like AI and machine learning that you want to know more about these guys such that you will put the best advertisement for them. So that's the, somehow all of them, the basics of that it goes to algorithmic game theory that we can talk more and this is one of the things that actually Richard is uh, very famous about it and we uh, talk about it. So uh, like you started with algorithm that you mentioned. So what was it, how did you the, do the transition to algorithmic game theory? Uh, then you can actually define maybe algorithmic game theory in a, Better thing that there are lots of definitions. Maybe everyone has different definitions, but we will go with your definition now. Well, let me. So one um, pivotal uh, event for me was John Kleinberg's work on six degrees of separation. So the the, the six degrees of separation is, is this belief that in some sort of networked sense, any two people on the globe are just at most six links apart. Now, I'm, I'm not sure this is really true, but it, it stemmed from an experiment done in the social sciences in, in the mid 20th century, which, which was carried out by chains of letters. And the task was for some set of volunteers who were 
somewhere in the middle of the US, I'm sorry, I forget the state, it was maybe Ohio, and they had to mail a letter and they were given the name of the person and told that they were in Boston. But the way they had to do it was to send it, send the letter to a friend with instructions to mail it on to another friend in order to get it to this destination. And then the experiment just counted how many letters eventually got through and how many links there were in, in the path. So this, this had, over the years, attracted lots of attention in the social sciences as to why it, 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 it worked. And essentially, prior explanations said, oh, random graphs, these are graphs where you have a set of n nodes and each edge, each possible edge occurs with a fixed small probability. If you have random graphs, <coughs> there are going to be short paths um, but between all, all pairs of vertices, so long as it's not too sparse. But short, having short paths doesn't tell you about how to find the paths. And John Kleinberg's beautiful work said, well, if you have a particular type of graph, which he, a very natural type of graph, which he demonstrated in his, his uh, work, then in fact you can find the path. That is, you know what is the next edge in the path and you don't have to worry about what happens after that. And just by sending essentially to a point that's a bit nearer to the destination than where you are, um, with very good probability, the message is going to get through in a small number of steps. Of course, this doesn't work for any graph. It's gotta be the right sort of graph. And the reason I found this work in, in inspiring was it suggested a new use for algorithmic analysis. Uh, heretofore, I built algorithms to solve particular combinatorial problems. But this was something quite different. This was explaining or providing a potential reason for why something we saw in the real world in society could actually work. And really it was an issue of uh, analyzing knowledge, the knowledge that sat in, um, in a particular network. But I mean, this, this, this was all, all concerned with um, still the, the same sort of information that we, we're dealing with uh, when we're looking at algorithms, um, but to a different end. Yeah, so just add a few things here that I think uh, uh, Professor Cole mentioned and these are very important uh, for the audience. So one, it was uh, the work of uh, John Kleinberg about, uh, like uh, he's a professor at uh, Cornell and he has done great work, especially one of them is a small world phenomena that uh, uh, Richard actually explained it that like any two people essentially there was like within six links, there is some short path Within six hop, any two person are familiar with each other in some sense. That's the idea that, and that uses, uh, and this uh, was the idea of a random graph that we may consider the whole world like a familiarity between two people as some kind of random, and an edge that comes with some probability. That's a random graph concept that the people try to um, approximate the real world, like the social network with a uh, random graph. So uh, I think at this point, the people don't, as you mentioned also, 
They don't agree that the random graphs can quite capture the social networks. And that was somehow the idea that he showed that actually in this graph, uh, which are in some sense social network graphs, there is a short path between any two people. And in some sense, the diameter of this graph, at least with high probability, is small. Uh, that diameter is the maximum uh, distance between two vertices in the uh, graph. Yeah, go ahead. So it's not just that it's a short path. It's that you can discover it just by local knowledge. Yes. So you can route from one person to another person without having to know the whole, whole route that uh, your message is going to travel. Uh, yes, uh, so that's uh, yeah, the one that you mentioned, actually, some kind of greedy algorithms and uh, like a local algorithm that at any time that you are there, you, will, you know who is the next person. So you don't know, like you want your A, you want to send it to some other guy like B. And you don't know where is B. But there are some rules that if you are A, there is some other, one of your neighbors, according to some greedy rules or some local rules, you can choose such that you can make sure that after like five, six times or very small number of hops actually reach that thing. And that's actually very important because the same thing is used in computer network currently. This is something it is called hot potato things that if you have some, it is, what is the hot potato? Is that if you have a hot potato in your hand, you want to give it to someone else as soon as possible. So the current way that, I mean, we are doing live here or I mean, all emails that are sent based on this kind of uh, protocols that how these different companies that they, all of them have their own network, how do they work such that, uh, like currently I'm in DC, you are at New York, they are sending these uh, pa essentially packets through the network and lots of them are using somehow similar algorithms, this kind of uh, uh, BGP or type of similar things that we can talk more about them. But this is somehow the base of networking as well. But here we talk about networking between people or networking between computers. That actually, and both of them are important graphs. And that's the thing that the people will consider it that these are very important ones. But here we want to talk more about the social networks and, and, and the issue, the main difference between computer networks and social network is that who are the people who, like if there are A and B, one node here, one node here, uh, like how do we decide that there is an edge here for social network versus computer network? And then we are talking about more social network, which includes both graphs as well as uh, human interactions. And I think that's the part that leads more to the game theory. Uh, yeah, go ahead. So this inspired me to, to want to do work or carry out research that had explanatory power. So just social or economic settings and to explain in algorithmic terms why it was possible that, that they could work. So one example, at least loosely speaking, is the so-called invisible hand of the market. This, this, this notion um, which I think goes to, back to Adam Smith, that the, the, your, your economic world uh, uh, arranges itself very nicely. That if, if you have the possibility to, to trade, to exchange things, um, that, that uh, people will, will specialize, uh, there'll be bakers and candlestick makers, again, in uh, 
um, the, the, the original terms. Um, and what, 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 what really drives this are prices. You, the prices will adjust themselves so that, so that at least approximately um, you, you will get uh, balanced supply and demand. Right. If if uh, there's too little of a good as gasoline presently, uh, pe people will will bid it up, and so it will become more expensive. And at some point, uh, this this will reduce reduce demand. Um, and so the, the, this is believed to work more more generally. That at least in a I mean maybe this is a bit uh, uh, self referential well not self referential but um, but anyway, that it will work for all goods simultaneously, so long as you've got a proper functioning market, right? So that prices are allowed to adjust to to meet varying conditions. So you want to talk about? I think it's related to this concept of market equilibrium in some sense, that you have some kind of certain demand and uh, like uh, certain resources, and the issue that they will be matched based. But the interesting thing is that there are some prices as well. And uh, this is like one of the interesting thing in the market equilibrium, I think you can talk about it, like the prices that we can put it, such that there is a market equilibrium. I think you can explain. So, right. So uh, a static or one-shot version of um, the the economic world is you you look at it at one time and you imagine you've got a certain set of demands let's say coming from people or or other entities and you've got a certain amount of supply and the mathematical problem is to balance the demands with the supply now it's a little more complicated than that because a person's demand is going to depend on the prices Right. If suddenly potatoes were the price of caviar, the desire for potatoes might might go down somewhat. Um, so prices act as an intermediary to find this balance point. And under very general conditions, it turns out there are prices that will cause the existing demands to balance with the supplies. And the the what complicates this is each we call them agent, but if you want to think of it, each person has their own view of what they want, depending on the prices. And this is called their preferences, and it's often presented in the form of a utility function. But just think of it in terms of preferences. Given these, these prices, you could buy this set of goods or this other set of goods, and which one do you prefer? You're going to buy the one you prefer, at least that's the theory. Um, and the, the, the equilibrium point at the equilibrium point, you, there's, there's then a set of prices, and if at those prices, everyone buys their favorite, what's called bundle, their favorite set of goods, then this will clear the market. That is to say, demand will match supply. Now, there are various caveats I'm not going into. Yeah, just one thing. I think we are disconnecting like in uh, 20 seconds. So we will disconnect and connect. Like if we had one hour, so we will. And I think if we can just go a little bit in the middle, that would be good. <laughs> so we will, I think, uh, just it finishes, then we will come back to continue about market uh, clearance conditions.
Hello, we are trying to. Bring a professor. Hello. Hi. <laughs> you are back. Yeah. Sorry, I think it takes some time because that's also interesting. So after, like the first time, I need to save this one and I need to give some uh, like a caption, etc. Because if I don't save it, then it is gone. So that's the thing that it takes a little bit and I need to type on the cell phone what is the topic <laughs> that included. So that's the thing that it takes a little bit more to come back for the audience. Uh, great. So uh, we are... Uh, that, uh, talking about the concept of essentially algorithmic game theory, and it starts one of the important one is the concept of market equilibrium and market clearance that uh, Richard was just talking that you have a set of demands, a set of resources, and based on that, you can always put some prices that if everyone wants the most wanted bundle, the market clears. It means that all uh, demands uh, and all supplies are satisfied completely and no one wants anything more and no one and anything that we had anyone had it actually has been sold so that's uh, that's the thing uh, thing that we were talking we want to add anything more to that and then yeah yeah so this uh, this is a long standing concept in in economics and um the so where, where did computer science get, get into this? I think it started with Papa Dimitriou, who asked about the complexity of computing these prices. So imagine you're, you're given all the information properly encoded about uh, pe people's preferences, and you, you know the, the supplies also. Then what are the prices? And the, the, why, why, why is this important? Um, well, or why do you want to know how easy or hard it is to compute the prices? Well, suppose it's hard to compute the prices. If that's the case, why would one imagine that the economic system is finding these equilibrium prices? Right? After all, whatever it is that people are doing and interacting, you offer a to buy something at a price, so you, you negotiate, uh, information is aggregated, is exchanged. This is really all a form of computation. And if it's a form of computation, it's some algorithm. And so one can then ask, what is the inherent complexity of computing in equilibrium? And for better or worse, it turns out that in general, this is a hard problem. And so this then led to a lot of work on, well, when can you compute um, these equilibrium prices in polynomial time? Our theoretical algorithmist uh, view of when, when something is, it can be done efficiently or when something is feasible. And where I came into this, I asked a slightly different question, which was, not only do we want efficiency in terms of polynomial time, we want a mechanism or an algorithm that's plausible 
in terms of the market potentially computing it by its natural actions, if you will. And so, for example, unnatural things in, in the context of sort of classic markets, uh, I'll elaborate on that in a minute, would be to, first of all, for one central unit to accumulate everyone's information and then run some kind of calculation and announce the prices. That does not strike one as how the real world works. Maybe you disagree, um, but that, that's my viewpoint. I think you want a much more distributed type of computation with lots of actors or agents doing calculations based on their local view of, of what's going on. And so, yes. Yeah, uh, that's great, actually. That is, uh, uh, I wanted to actually quote something from uh, Michael Jordan. He's actually he's a very famous computer scientist. There's Michael Jordan, that's it. But I did say he's uh, actually Michael Jordan, he's a professor at 30. He's very famous as well, uh, like in the ML community. And that was interesting because he was presenting in some I mean, workshop that we had. and. He was mentioning that the people are all asking about ML, how complicated ML is that. But he said actually, my view is that uh, like uh, this whole uh, economics and like this kind of uh, game theory that goes in the world that is much more complicated than lots of ML things that we are doing and understanding that. And the, like this supply chain thing that are going, I don't know how many particles they should go from this part of the world to this part of the world. And all of them are based on economic uh, incentives. That's very important because if the price is too high, the people don't want it. So everything should also make sense uh, economically. And this, maybe I, I didn't get it that uh, issue that much uh, when he mentioned, but like the past few months that now I'm going to the grocery stores and the prices is like, I don't know, some of this, like even 50%, some of these items are higher. They call it like 7, 8% inflation, but sometimes actually much more than that. And you will see part of that is because of the supply chain, because the past two years, some of these guys that they were doing, for example, the transportation, they left their job. Then the transportation cannot happen. Like there is some demand here, uh, some demand here and some supply here, but these guys, they cannot connect with each other. And we, and this causes that if, if yes we can connect it, but the price would be too high. Then maybe I don't want these things, and then this guy become bankrupted essentially, and there is no supply anymore. So that's actually the one very related to the discussion that we have here. And here we consider a bit more basic stuff that everyone uh, first we start with the more basic stuff that these are like the supply and demand in a network. But as uh, you mentioned, this is not the case that one central entity is coming and decides about prices. That's a typical. So even we don't know how you can compute. For certain markets, we know in polynomial time how we can compute it. And again, this is maybe less important than the fact that this is not decided by a central agent. It might be decided by several agents in like some procedures are called tautonomous process that some, some prices are going up, less demands for them, then they will come down and so on and so forth. And we have some prices that we are seeing currently in the market. When you go buy a grocery store, actually comes out of a very complicated process that you will get this price. 
And that's the one that we try to understand it. We try to not only understand it, see how can we compute these prices, this very efficient algorithm or some distributed algorithm, something that the people locally decide about their prices and then goes to the current prices that we are seeing. Some people decide in, I don't know, in China about some prices and that has an effect on the price that I buy, even not the same item, some different item in the US. So that's the whole supply chain global thing that is very important. And yes, I think as you mentioned, uh, that's uh, like we want to consider certain type of algorithm. We try to understand this market better and uh, get a sense of it. Uh, and with some algorithms which are much more restricted, much more local, much more distributed, the same way that the people are deciding on the prices. Yeah, go ahead. Okay, I'm not, not sure I have too much to, to add there. I mean, one, one exception to this setting is that there are now some very large centralized markets, think Amazon or, or, or Google, where they ha actually do have a huge amount of information about I mean, all, all the different items that they're selling. So they, they can run quite complicated algorithms, which may not not fit in the the usual notion that you've got a lot of this a lot of separate parties each doing their own thing which in amalgam uh, produce an outcome but I, I think this is i mean it's quite recent phenomena that you have this level of aggregation of, of information and yeah. even there of course amazon is dealing with a, a myriad of businesses that are selling um, their, their, their goods through Amazon. Yeah, so uh, Amazon essentially is some kind of uh, uh, like market for uh, supply, uh, like supply demand type of thing for a regular uh, type of items that we buy. But uh, the other example is uh, Google or Facebook that they are running the same thing for advertisement auctions that who wants to do the advertisement. And as you mentioned, these are actually centralized ones are very important as well because this, and the interesting thing is that uh, like when we talk about market clearance, maybe, I mean, the effect, I mean, we may talk about, I don't know, years of <laughs> reaching an equilibrium or maybe at least a weeks of reaching an equilibrium. But here, when we talk about this kind of algorithms at, uh, for Google or Facebook for advertisement, like, or actually Amazon as well, these are the ones that will be decided, I don't know, in less than a millisecond. So that is, both of them are the research things that are very interesting. So is there any, like, a, I mean, the main problem that we can think about, I mean, as an open problem, that you think that's the most important one in this market clearance? So I don't have a, a precise problem, but the... The issue I, I, I think that's most interesting, what to me is most interesting, is, is one of dynamics. So actually, in, in, the, in the real world, things change and all, 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 all the time. A lot of the time, changes are fairly modest. And, but sometimes something happens, and it's a, what is called a shock in economic terms, um, and that you're, you're in a t totally new situation. What I'm interested in is, is making statements about the slowly changing scenario. So one of the things 
I, why I believe um, algorithms defined equilibrium or as they described that converge towards an equilibrium. So as you make updates, you get closer and closer to the equilibrium. So at least intuitively, if things are changing slowly, you can imagine that the updates you are making bring you toward the current equilibrium and then conditions change a little. So the equilibrium moves, but if it's a nice setup, it doesn't move too much. And so what's then happening is your algorithm or your updates are chasing this moving equilibrium. And so, so long as things don't change too quickly, you're staying close to the changing equilibrium. And I think of that as very likely a much more common, well, state isn't quite the right word, but description of the behavior of, of, of many systems, and not necessarily just market equilibria, that they're in a, a state of flux, but there's, still, there's predictability to them. And so you can, it makes sense to treat the current instantaneous equilibrium as if it were you know, a permanent equilibrium, even though it's not going to be. Okay. Actually, one person asked a question. So we consider somehow algorithm for economics. Are there algorithms for politics as well? Um, so I'm less familiar with this. There's a lot of study of influence on networks. Uh, so you can imagine, a, so think of the Facebook graph where Nodes are, are people and edges are, are between friends. And so the, the question one can ask is, for example, how does an opinion propagate? Or how do communities get, a, get established? And one then makes a model um, of how in, in the entities, the individuals update their opinions based on their neighbors. And you then study mathematically what what happens? Does, does, the does, the, does the network reach a single opinion? Does it partition in, into different zones of different opinions? Is it just chaotic? And of course, these things depend on the conditions and on the rules for, for how, how things update. But that, that's... Uh, Go ahead. Yeah, actually, I mean, there are, uh, I mean, some of this uh, that uh, we have done it, I mean, some of this based on some work again that John Kleinberg has done it. So in some sense, we can consider that when we consider, we have the algorithms that try to optimize everything. Like ML, uh, everything else, and like lots of ML stuff are indeed also part of the algorithm. But at the same time, these are economics that they try to understand essentially more incentives of the people. And so if we consider this, in that case, we discuss, like, for example, Amazon is a good example. Amazon is a good example that you are selling some item, somebody buys it. Now, there is another thing that if you want to consider more political type of things, that these items are not just a pure items. It's not just some shoe that I buy. It is some piece of information. And then you have some state of mind, like as a person that has some certain beliefs, essentially. Now, this belief has effect on this item. So in some sense, I may try to get this information and then propagate through the network, or I may not do that if it is not, if it is somehow against my beliefs. So in some sense, this, uh, in some sense, these items are not just some uh, dumb things, some shoes or something like this, that they don't have any opinion about 
there is nothing, no opinion around it. But these are some information, some news, etc., that I decide whether I want to propagate it or not. And if you understand this network better, which is, of course, is a complex network, then this helps us to understand even the political things, because generally politics goes more with, I mean, democracy, hopefully in lots of countries, maybe not in all countries. And if, even actually those countries that they are more uh, autocrats are there, or uh, like there's a king or others, they, or similar type of king, they try to restrict this set of information. So even for those societies understanding this economies of information going around, that would be some sense that decides what is politics. And that's the, somehow is the next step of considering algorithms, economics, and politics together in some sense. Which politics here means the, more the belief of the people. Yeah, so, uh, I think- uh, But let me, let me add something. The, this so, notion of network transmission arises in quite different fields. For example, one is the, the spread of disease. You can model it in a similar way. So the, the, in a mathematical sense, uh, the, 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 this network science, as it's called, is, is much wider than just politics. Uh, yeah, and as you mentioned, that's actually another one. The disease one is exactly a good example. I think the catch is that there also, I mean, there is some people in some sense carrying the disease, but in the belief, they have the option to say that I don't want to um, convey this uh, message or uh, tra um, transport this message, but in the disease, maybe you don't have that much uh, capability yourself to decide. That's, well, it depends how you look at it because there are different behaviors and behaviors may be more or less yeah. infectious. Exactly. So I think then in that case, you can say that your behavior actually can uh, you, you have a, some certain degree of control, I will say, on that. Not mm -hmm. the total control that you may mm -hmm. have uh, on um, news, if we call it actually a total control, because maybe there also you don't have it. You're excited and you are just uh, uh, retweeting some things that maybe you don't believe that if you think about it one, late, one hour later. Uh, great. So these are essentially the concept of... Uh, uh, and then one thing we discussed about the equilibrium. So we want to define, so how do we define equilibrium in general and the market? Maybe that is, uh, or like, uh, so, yeah, go ahead. So an, an equilibrium is, is a notion that occurs in many fields. It's known, known in physics. Um, certainly is a big, big idea in economics. And so informally, I would say, an equilibrium is a state or a configuration that's self-sustaining. That is, given the choices, whatever they are, of all, all the other parties, so imagine if you're setting prices and you have control in one price and all the other prices, you're, you're told what they are, then your preferred choice is actually going to be to set the your price at, at the, the equilibrium value. And so if you imagine this for each price in turn, there is no reason for any price to be changed because each, given what all the other prices are, each price, so far as a price has a desire, wants to be at its actual equilibrium value. 
And this, this is a notion that's um, also better known in, in the sense of Nash equilibria, which comes up in game playing. And here again, there's a stable state and it's characterized in, in the same way. If you know how everyone else is playing, then you will want to play the, your, your part of the Nash equilibrium strategy. And if this is true for every player, whatever this Nash equilibrium is, the strategy is, everyone's going to stay there because there isn't something better to do given what everyone else is doing. Great. Well, this actually the great concept of Nash equilibrium. So we discussed, I mean, before essentially with Professor Kassarj uh, about uh, P versus NP. And this is one of the interesting problems. Um, finding a Nash equilibrium in games, we don't know whether it can be done in and P or not. It, as I mentioned in my classes, complexity people believe that any two classes are different. So you can and if you prove I mean some of them are the same, they may you may get a best paper award there. But in that sense, this is another class that we don't know whether it is a, uh, uh, um, we can do it in polynomial time or not. So in some sense, market equilibrium also is very related to this natural equilibrium. And for some classes, some cases we know how we can compute it in polynomial time. And of course, the discussion of how can we do it in a distributed way, in a local way, that's a thing that we can do it for some of them. But Nash equilibrium in general, there are a certain class of problems that are as hard as Nash equilibrium. And I think the Nash equilibrium in some sense is that if everyone, uh, we are in equilibrium, that if and only if that, if everyone does not want to change your state, your best move is the current move that you are doing. So you don't want to change your state. And that's the equilibrium that it is used a, a lot, I mean, at least in the, I mean, the ore field. And uh, Nash, uh, of course, uh, uh, he got the Nobel Prize in economics. One of the most things was because of this concept of Nash equilibrium and everyone should have seen this beautiful mind. So if you go there, that's the whole things that they are, uh, I mean, some part of this movie about this Nash equilibrium the way that he invented that. And uh, great. So uh, that's uh, like, is there, uh, what is the big, like, as I mentioned, we don't know how can we compute Nash equilibrium. Uh, what is your belief? Do you think that it, it can be done in polynomial time or not? We have this class of PPAT for that, PNP and PPAT. Uh, what do you think about it? Well, I don't really know. I mean, it in some sense has a flavor of the, MP-complete problems from an algorithmic perspective in the sense that we really don't have any good ideas as to what to do beyond you know, essentially the naive trial solutions or, or some you know, simple obvious improvements on that. And, um, you know, whether... So here's the conundrum that... I don't think that we understand or are in a position to understand um, non-trivial n to the 100 time algorithms. These, of course, are polynomial time algorithms, but we, we have no idea what to do with n to the 100 time in any interesting way. Of course, we, we can join together a few algorithms so we can have a subroutine that's n to the five, 
and inside an inch of the five algorithms, that then becomes an inch of the 25 algorithm. But the, the, this isn't particularly interesting. And so from that point of view, I, I find it very hard to confidently say the world must be nice. And if it's not in the polynomial time algorithms we've thought of, it, it must be that it's exponential time. Still, as I have no ideas beyond the algorithmic techniques that we know, um, I'm inclined to believe that, that, that PPAD, as well as, of course, MP, uh, are indeed exponential time for the hardest problems. Great. I think this is like you mentioned another concept about the fine-grained complexity. So we believe that like the running time of the algorithm that we are getting, the practical one would be, of course, linear. Like the input size is given, you will go few passes on that, you will get it. Maybe quadratic, n to the 2. Or maybe, I mean, uh, like there are some problems there, like subset, uh, the threesum and others. And the other one is the class, it is called a cubic, it is all pair shortest pass. But after n to the 3, really, we, we cannot use it that much in practice, uh, especially with the large data error that we are there. And we may not have a very good understanding about them. So what are the natural algorithms? Of course, you can make one efficient algorithm, run it in an inefficient way and make n to the 3, but it's more like artificial type of algorithms. Uh, and in some sense, that might be, that's the whole idea of fine-grained complexity that actually I'm teaching a course on uh, algorithmic lower bound, fun with hardness, as we talk about all these things. And we have a book, hopefully, that is coming. This is this uh, uh, Bill Gossarge and Eric Main. And uh, this is the book, like, in a, uh, hopefully, like, in a, several months from now, it should uh, come out. And uh, that's the one that we consider about this kind of hardness. And one particular thing about this fine-grained complexity is that uh, do we know anything beyond that? In some sense, even if we get an algorithm like n to the 10, maybe it is as good as any exponential time algorithm, or it's not that exciting. But like in theory, these are interesting. But in practice, I think there is an interesting uh, thing that is going on. So what question, is there this concept of Nash equilibrium, do you know any place that is used in practice? Uh, like, of course, these are like lots of heuristics or lots of algorithms are based on that. But any particular things that I mean, you remember? Well, so this, this notion, say in a first price auction where you're um, so I'll explain that in a moment, where, where you, you've got randomized uh, values. So, so first price auction is what you imagine classically, let's say, in a Christie's art auction. Uh, people come and bid, and whatever's the final bid, that's the price at which the item is sold. And so you have a series of ascending, bid, increasing bids, and the winner is the, the last bid, and they have to pay what they bid, and that's called a first price auction. Um, so now in a, in a, imagine you, you were bidding, and there was a fancy piece of art, there was a bit of a million, and you really want it, and so you say a million and a half, and it sells to you. Well, maybe you could have got it for a, actually a million and a quarter, because it, all you know is that the previous person was willing to pay a million. So if you were really uh, wanting to cite psychological issues of intimidating your, your opponent, 
um, pay the minimum possible price, you should increment your bid in $1 units or whatever is the minimum amount that the auction allows, because then you're paying the least amount that you need to in order to beat uh, whoever else is bidding on the item. Um, but in, in, so there are other first price settings where it's not a live auction, but where you just submit a bid. So everyone writes down their bid, puts it in an envelope and submits it um, to, to, the, to the whoever's selling. And this, this is a standard mode in what is are called procurement auctions, uh, where you might be bidding to build a bridge across a river or something like that. And so there you don't have the possibility of seeing what everyone else is bidding. You just maybe have some idea of how they think about the world and how, what their costs are and how much profit they want and that sort of thing. So the way then to think about it is that there's a distribution, sort of a probabilistic um, way of assessing the, the, the everyone's uh, how much everyone is willing to, or what everyone's cost is for building this bridge, and hence how, what is the minimum amount that they, they, they would bid? Actually, when in a procurement auction, you're trying to, you're selecting the lowest bid, not the highest bid, but it's the same idea otherwise. And here, you're again, so you don't necessarily want to bid exactly your cost because then you won't make any profit. And you want to do a kind of a combination of maximizing your profit and your likelihood of making a win. So what you're going to do is what's called shading your bid. You're not going to bid in the procurement auction the um, maximum amount at which you could afford to take this contract. You're going to bid somewhat less in order to give yourself a profit. And so if everyone is shading their bids, and why wouldn't everyone be shading their bids? You're back into the situation of a Nash equilibrium. It's actually called a Bayes-Nash equilibrium because you're dealing with probabilistic distributions, but, but never mind that. And so this is definitely a practical setting for, for Nash equilibria. And so, so here we consider the case that you can shade your bid. Correct? Yes. yes. I think we, will, we actually talk about this kind of first price auction that like the auctions that the, like auction for some art or something like this, and the person with the highest bid will get it, but at the second price. This is some kind of uh, truthful mechanism that we talk a little bit also about it uh, after this, but that's one way. But here we are charging the second price. Now the good thing, I mean, the other thing that the Professor Cole mentioned is about uh, this uh, concept of uh, base dash and bid shading. Bit shading actually became a very important problem. So if you are doing, uh, this is like, from my knowledge that I work with industry. So uh, this was this idea in the advertisement world. In the advertisement world, there is this, uh, we will probably have some lies on that about how the advertisement auction works. But in short, it was first price at the beginning. Like Google was the pioneer of that. They had the first price for advertisement auction. Then after a few months, they, they were thinking that actually the prices are going down uh, like the, because of this, it is not a truthful mechanism that we define it. Then they went to the second price auction that it was there for a while, but they were playing lots of games nowadays 
this company is using the machine learning to find the reserve price, then uh, lots of uh, companies like competitors to Google, they changed, they went from first, second price to first price, which was where and more known for the people. And like almost from a year ago, a year and a half, Uh, like one and a half year ago, now Google also went to first price. So everything again, it went from the first price to second price and again to first price. And this concept of big shading that you mentioned is a very important one in the advertisement world. So the issue is that you know that if everything is first price, so you need to shade your bid. You need to decrease a little bit because if you don't do that, you may pay too much because Uh, this was the idea that uh, like maybe the second person who wants it, he wants only this advertisement place, I don't know, for two cents. But you want to pay, you don't know maybe the market, you are willing to pay $10 for that. And so in that case, uh, this $2 versus two cents is very important because if you say four cents, most probably you will get it and you only need to pay four cents. But you say $10 and you need to pay $10 because it's the first price auction and you will pay what you say. And that is important. So that is also my experience that I have it with uh, Google. These numbers that I mentioned are not that much off as well. So like any click that you will get it at Google, the adver advertiser needs to pay something like around $2, $3. I don't know if you knew that. But that uh, any click that happens, $2, $3, the advertiser pays for that. Uh, that's a huge number actually. So it is important that if you know the market, if you pay 10 cents, you will win it, or you need to go $3 to win it. And this is the bit shading. So the bit shading is that, okay, your actual value is $3 for that, but you may I get your bit according to the history and some machine learning and others, I decided how much I should go down, such that still you have a good chance of winning the auction, while you don't pay $3, maybe you pay $1 and $2 you will save. And these are, you are advertising a lot of them. So uh, $2 in each click, it would be a huge save, like if you are doing a large number of advertisements. So that's a good thing. So I think you may want to talk a little bit about the truthful mechanism. That's another thing that you have done several nice work there. And uh, rest strategy proof, I think it has a different name, you can go. Okay. okay, so there's the notion <clears throat> of what's called truthful or incentive-compatible mechanisms. And let's just look at the, the example of first and second price auctions again. So in a second price auction, as Mohammed said, what, what happens is the top bidder wins and they pay the amount bid by the second highest bidder. So you know that in order to win the item, you have to bid at least the amount that the second highest bidder has bid, or just above it. So that's the minimum amount you, you, you could um, um, bid and win, and that's the amount you're going to pay. And so the point of the, the truthful mechanism is that in this situation, you might as well bid whatever this item is worth to you or whatever you're willing to pay for it in, or, in order to win it because that's um, you, you, the guarantee is you'll never pay more than you have to pay in order to win the item 
And furthermore, you'll win it so long as you're able to afford the item or you're, you're will, you, you are willing to buy it at the given price. And so that's what, what um, uh, incentive compatible or truthful means, that you might as well say what, what, what your, your true feelings, what your true valuation for the item is. Whereas in a first price auction, as we just discussed, you often want to not bid what the thing is worth to you, but bid somewhat less. So that's not truthful. And the advantage of a truthful auction is it's a very simple thing for you to participate in. You just tell what you think. You don't have to worry about what anyone else is doing. Oh, if they did this, then I should do that. You know, the usual kind of strategic game as in playing poker or something like that. So in terms of the effort, it's something that's, at least in principle, easy uh, for the participants. And this, in principle, also means that it's easy to understand what's happening. Whoever bids the highest wins, and they pay the amount that they need to pay in order to win. And great. Yeah, so that's, uh, I mean, very important thing. It, it is like, if we can, this is like the research that they have done also in the, like, truthful mechanism. It's all very nice mechanism to have. Unfortunately, it's not easy to design such kind of mechanism. I think you have designed several of these things, and designing these mechanisms are not that easy. Sometimes it actually occurred to us that some of them, or I mean, you can design it, but uh, you may have a lot of inefficiency. So let me give an example, actually, that, like, uh, uh, like for example, this example that we have mentioned for the art that it is this art that you want to sell it and you want to sell it to the first price, the first price, the person who has the first price at the price of the second price. This is the truthful mechanism. It's an easy thing that you can see that if you lie, I, this is a, maybe an easier way in the truthful mechanism. If you lie, you don't gain. And you can do some case analysis and you see that if you lie about your thing, does not lose. But the issue is this one, that uh, if uh, I have art, and among the audience, maybe there is one person who knows what is art. And I say, I'm a seller. I want to sell my art. One of these guys, they know that, for example, this is a very famous art. And maybe I know that. But lots of others, they don't know that. So what will happen in this case, if I run a second price auction, uh, the issue is uh, these things that I may sell this thing that maybe worth, I don't know, 10,000. Because he's the only person, like the first price, knows that uh, he, I may need to, uh, the, and the second price among the other people, they don't know about it. They maybe the second price is just 200. And, uh, and generally these are like in the sealed bit, in a sense that they don't know what is the other offers. Like you can think about for a house. This is another example that you can say. So in the, in, if you want to sell your house, you don't want to go second price. Because uh, the, the people generally, they don't know what are, what other offers. And so if you go second price, maybe there are not other, there's only one person who knows the value and willing to pay 10,000. But lots of others, they don't know and they will just pay maybe 200. And say, you need to sell this item that really was, uh, the actual price was around 10,000. You only sell it at 200. So that's unfortunately the thing that you are losing some value here as a seller. And this is exactly the idea that I mentioned for Google uh, auction they, and others. I mean, they, they, 
so the history was that they went to second prize, but then they noted that actually they are losing money here. So they have done all sorts of tricks. It is called the reserve prize using some machine learning techniques, such that they can bring the price higher. But in that sense, actually, then these approaches that they have used it cause that it goes actually to the second price without telling to the customers that it is a second price. So that's the thing. Some companies decided that okay, we will just mention first price and forget about this idea of that and let the these uh, advertisers shade their bids. Well, this is, there are some inefficiency in designing truthful mechanisms. If you can design and you can bond inefficiency, these are great mechanisms. But not always we can do that. And I think this is a part of research that we are doing. And I think you have several good papers on those stuff as well. That we try to understand the inefficiency of the system such that we have a truthful mechanism. Do you want to add anything to that? So there's an interesting domain of work on which I worked with one of my former PhD students, Vasilis Gatselis, which concerns um, what's called allocating or sharing out goods in a situation where you're not allowed to use money. So you're not selling goods for money, but you've got some notion of shares that everyone should get. Um, so you just to make it concrete, you could imagine your dividing an estate among the heirs to the estate. The, the will has not been uh, written in terms of specifying who, who gets what. Um, so imagine you, you're, you're dividing up furniture and books and, uh, and artwork, not, not, not uh, financial instruments, which of course is easy enough to divide. And the idea is that different people have different um, desires or different relative desires for the various goods. One person likes this piece of art, another one likes that piece of art, and so forth. So what you want to do, is, what you need to do is to come up with a, a, a mechanism, uh, if you will, an auction rule that allows you to divide up the goods uh, among the, the, the participants in a fair way. And the, there are issues here. What does fair mean? Um, I don't, don't really want to go into that. Uh, um, the second is, how do you align, how do you cause people to be truthful in this situation? Because you, you have to get bids um, or declarations of preferences in order to divide things up and it could be that people misdeclare their preferences, think of it as an analog to shading your bid in order to improve their outcome. And it turns out you, it's, it's impossible to divide up all the goods in a fair manner. And what we came, did was we came up with a mechanism which uh, could be called a money burning mechanism or a good burning mechanism, which was the auctioneer held aside a fraction of the goods and used that to kind of simulate the effect of money so as to give incentives to the participants to actually give truthful bids. And what we showed, and you, you may think this is, is not a practical um, solution, I won't argue with it in the, in the case of uh, the example of partitioning in the state, uh, it was that there's a mechanism that only needs, only needs to hold aside a constant fraction of the goods in order to uh, get everyone to act in a truthful way. 
good. And it was what this partitioning of estate exam and application? Well, so that was sort of, I mean, it, it, the problem was phrased kind of more generically as just assigning goods, where, um, but where, where money wasn't allowed. And I have seen that there was, it was a follow-on work which was concerned with assigning computing resources, say in a cloud setting, uh, which used our, our, our mechanism or little tweak on it as a subroutine. Um, so I'm not going to say that this, because I don't know that, the, that this mechanism has, has been, you know, the systems work has been taken up as an actual solution in production, but uh, it, it was in a serious systems conference. So, you know, at least it, it, it gained some consideration. Um, mm. And the, 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 their tweak was actually, they found a way of avoiding holding aside a fraction of the goods. They managed to partition all the goods while maintaining truthfulness. Uh, great. Yeah, so I think, uh, like for general, for uh, audience, I think you can just go to, I mean, Professor uh, Richard Cole, uh, their page and like my page, and there are lots of other people who are doing, uh, I mean, this kind of algorithmic game theory. It's not really important. I, I, I mentioned to my students that the people are going all the way to learn ML and others. However, actually, if I think the actual goal is with, uh, this type of algorithmic game theory and this, because these companies, like ML is almost everywhere and lots of people know about ML, but not too many people know about this kind of algorithmic game theory and this kind of auction design and other mechanisms that these are, and these are like trillion dollar market for them. All Google, Facebook, Amazon now, and these and Microsoft, these are like the big players and there are tons of, uh, even the smaller one like Pinterest and other companies, uh, Snapchat, uh, uh, TikTok and other, all of them are based on this type of mechanism design and uh, auction design and the efficient algorithm for that. It's a really great area. Not too many people know about this because you need to have a good math background, good computer science and good econ background such that you can do that. And there are lots of topics that actually is uh, here that I think you can go and read. We try to maybe just uh, talk about a little bit, some problem we went a bit in more detail, but there are a lot of things there. So is there anything that you want to add to regarding your research? I mean, uh, so actually I'd like to come back to a earlier conversation about motivating activities in childhood. So my mathematics teacher, when I was 11 years old, uh, gave a, to the, his, the, his class a, a, the, puzzle, the puzzle, the following puzzle, uh, which I really dug into, and some of you may have heard of it. It's something called four fours. And so the rule of the game is you have to write an, an, an arithmetic expression using the number four exactly four times to make each integer in turn. So one could be four plus four divided by four plus four. And you're allowed to use exponentiation, factorial, decimal points, and the recurring symbol. And you can go surprisingly far. And in, in very real sense, this is a very, to my mind, algorithmic 
mindset or combinatorial mindset that's needed to figure, figure these things out. And it was a very interesting puzzle for me at age 11. And in fact, many years later, I persuaded my colleague, Dennis Shasha, who writes the puzzle column for communications at the ACM, to put this into one of his uh, uh, month monthly puzzles. This was now some years ago. And unfortunately, the solutions are, of course, on, on the internet. Um, but uh, I, I, I found it, uh, I mean, not, not directly, but it was something that encouraged me to hone my uh, existing inclination for, for, for mathematics and for solving puzzles. Yeah, uh, puzzles in general actually, I mean, play, I mean, very important role. Like even this first action that we discussed, that comes uh, like uh, my a child is coming and they are actually have uh, two children, my daughter and son, they are playing this rock, paper, scissor a lot with each other. Lots of these, or like even this first prize, second prize, these are very nice puzzly type of things. But later on, that's the good things about, I mean, uh, foundations of computer science. Lots of them actually start with very simple stuff. Of course, they become more complicated and uh, more sophisticated. But we try, I mean, talk to some of this basic stuff, like about usefulness and others in these things. And this type of puzzle really can help. Like, because, uh, I mean, parents, I think these are very important if you find nice puzzles uh, that... They are, they are telling about maths, and this that can be a good example. Like this first prize, second prize, I think that's a good example that you may want to do it yourself and then maybe talk with your child on that. That is the things that it is uh, uh, good to do. And uh, so that is, uh, uh, is there any uh, things about, uh, uh, actually let me ask you one question before, like maybe one other thing that I can talk about research. But uh, as these things about, I think generally, like you get lots of emails, I'm sure, and I get lots of emails about like admission process. So this is like, this is like as a university professor, the issue that what is the admission process essentially? Uh, this is some kind of auction actually, and game theory as well in it. So, I mean, uh, like uh, what is the process like at NYU? I think this is something that like, it is good for some of the people to know if they want to apply for a PhD, what should be the process and what do they should do to get admission? Well, so, yeah, so NYU is actually a little complicated because we have um, programs in the current institute and also in the School of Engineering, which is, which is a, separate, uh, um, a separate program. And we also have campuses in Shanghai and Abu Dhabi, which uh, offer PhDs in, in computer science. So you, you have to be careful when applying to NYU to specify which programs you're interested in. Of course, the form asks you, but it's good to be aware that there's more than one program and so to pay attention to that. Um, in terms of how to apply these days, many people, in the semester, so in the fall semester, or even sometimes a little earlier, start writing to professors uh, saying that they might be interested in PhD studies. And th this is two-sided, of course, in part it's an effort to um, explore what, what your chances are and to introduce yourself to, to the professor. 
And one difficulty you have to remember is that when you communicate with a professor, they're not getting to see the full set of information. Um, and so you're by and large not going to get um, very clear negative feedback. Um, also because pe people <laughs> don't... don't they don't, want to and they don't want to tell you. <laughs> well, they, but also they may not have enough information to, to, to assess. Um, still, this can be useful. It's a, it's a way to introduce yourself. I mean, the trouble is uh, faculty are getting more, more and more of, of these re requests um, and you know, having an hour-long chat with someone or two-hour chat, it starts adding up. Um, so for the, the way it works at NYU is the, and I expect in most places, these in the end are departmental decisions. And we have a department committee which reads all the applications and tries to identify the, the better ones and then circulates those to interested faculty for, the, for their input. And then there's a final decision to make an offer or not make an offer, which is a combination of the committee and, and the individual faculty member. But in the end, because there's a department offer, it's the department committee that makes the decision. Um, of course, th this is driven by faculty interests Though not all admits are based on single faculty interests, in not so much in my, in my area, but say in machine learning, we have a lot of faculty, so admissions will be more, quite often more group-oriented. So a student will be admitted because they look good for that area, but not necessarily because there's one particular faculty member who, who, who wants them. So it is kind of a mix in that regard. And what are important? Um, well, everything gets looked at. I'd say to, to me, letters of reference are very important. And to some extent, of course, as a student that's beyond your control, your, your references are going to write based on their view of you, but hopefully you can identify the people who you think um, have a good opinion of you. Um, otherwise, you know, things have become more uncertain because now GREs are becoming less of a common thing. Um, but I tend to view them as a kind of sliding scale indicator. I, I want to see good GREs, particularly quantitative GREs, uh, but there isn't an absolute line there. But if you're going to working with me on mathematical type things, I get concerned if you're not showing good performance on that. Now, I realize you know, people are different. Some are better at test taking than others. So things, things can be explained. There isn't a, a hard line. I also find writing skills extremely important. Um, and this isn't just a matter of are you native English or not. Um, one of my best Students in terms of writing ability is actually is was Greek. Well, it still is Greek, of course. Uh, so the ability to organize your thoughts is something that has nothing to do with what language you're writing in. Of course, if you're an English native English speaker, it's a little easier generally to write in English. But 
I have spent an enormous amount of my time helping students write. This is one of the, the biggest uh, amounts of time that, that I use once we get to the stage of writing papers. And uh, I, not having to do that or having to do less of that is, is a significant plus for me. So it's yes. important to me. Uh, yeah, so that's great. Actually, I think you mentioned several criteria that are important. I think one uh, like one important question is that when you send an email, like a, when you want to apply for PhD, I believe that you should send an email to the people that you want to, the, essentially the, the faculty that possibly you want to work with them. And it is very important because they know you essentially. At the same time, if you don't get an answer, or if you get an answer. Don't, I mean, read too much to it because, as I mean, uh, Professor Cole mentioned also, there are some kind of niceness. I can, and also I don't have the whole authority that I, I said that you will get admitted or you will be rejected. So uh, in general, unless, I mean, even faculty is very excited and say that, okay, let's talk or other, that means the positive things. But uh, don't read that much into the email that say, okay, he mentioned this, maybe he, it means that I get admission or not. It, unfortunately, it is somehow beyond the hand of one person. And, and he can, he also, or she might be nice and cannot tell you exactly that you will get admitted or not at this point. And even he or she think that, I mean, you are below bar. Maybe he does not want to disappoint you or she does not want to disappoint you. So that's important when you send an email. But I think it is, sending the email is good, but don't read too much into it. And just let the process go. And I mean, hopefully, I mean, if you are qualified, if you can meet the bar, then you can get admissions. And all other things that mentioned, uh, uh, Richard mentioned regarding the, uh, like, uh, good writing, uh, good English, of course. And good writing and good English are two different things. That is, you may be, I mean, like even native uh, English speaker, but still good writing, it takes time, especially in maths. That is on, one thing that you need to consider. And other things like, of course, your GPA and other stuff and recommendation letters. These are very important that you can get essentially this from the people who know you. And at the same time, I mean, if they are famous people, that's better. But first, they should know you. If they don't know you and even a first famous person and just say one line or two lines about you, that's not a great letter. So let me, Mohammed, let me, let me add, if I, if I may. So the other thing that's important is, is your personal statement, your explanation of why you want to pursue a PhD and what has influenced you. In, in, your, in, your, in your past, I at least pay a lot of attention to, to those statements. Yeah, good. And that is part of the place that you can actually show good writing. So that is important to, and at least if your writing is not that great, it shows there, and that it means that you may be below the bar for the purpose of these things. But the other thing to remember is that different people in different places are going to assess things differently and attach different weights um, to these various elements. So don't read too much into any one person's opinion and telling you what you should or shouldn't be doing. Yeah, uh, good. So actually there's one thing that I mean, it tried to disconnect us again. So I think we will go back and come back and then hopefully I mean, we will finish soon after that. So yeah, I just take I mean, some time because I need to post it. Like we will be back in one minute. Okay. Yeah. Uh, good. 
So in like seven seconds, it will be gone. Yeah, well, <laughs> we are back essentially. Uh, great. Uh, so uh, I think we were talking about this uh, application, and uh, Dr. Cole mentioned. I mean, don't read. I mean, too much is one opinion versus other person uh, opinion, and this doesn't necessarily say that you will get admitted or not. Just try your best, improve your writing. The writing is very important if you want to continue in academia or if you want to go to industry, like places like at, uh, like I was at Amazon, like there, the amount of the emphasis on writing actually is much more, even as a professor uh, in academia. So you may need to write much better writing for general audience there, comparing to us that we are writing for grants, etc. So writing is very important, improve that, I mean, and that shows essentially in your personal statements, uh, as well as, uh, I mean, of course, your CV should be strong. If you can do some research, so you think, I mean, if you have, I mean, somebody has done research before, I mean, how much that help to get admission? So how many, like, what is the percentage of people that they have a, some papers or some good papers among your applicants? Oh, I... I... It's hard to give a number. Um, I, I don't know. But I mean, the, the, so the difficulty with assessing research is, I mean, typically the, the research will be co-authored with an advisor or with multiple people. And it's, it's really um, a, a notion of a, what was the student's role in this. And the you know, okay, so the advisor very likely writes a, a letter of reference. Um, so I would say these days it's definitely a, a plus to have, have done something um, interesting. Of course, what, what, what is interesting is in, in the eye of the beholder. Um, I wouldn't say it's absolutely critical, but it's it certainly helps, yeah, and and also depending on where you're coming from. So if there's it's a place where there's a lot of opportunity for research, and you haven't pursued that or the the opportunity didn't occur for you, um, then there's a need for more explanation of why that's the situation. Great, and uh, I think some of these competitions, like for example, Math Olympiad or Computer Olympiad, if you had it, and especially if like that, because these are some good measures. These are like very, I mean, some competitions, real competition with the highest standard that the people can judge based on that. That will be very important that you will put it. And so, in some sense, if you want to apply, you need to also make a plan for it, and some. It doesn't mean that if you didn't have participated in these competitions, you don't get the um, admission, but each of them adds up. And if you have lots of them, then the chance would be higher to get it uh, in computer science. And we'll talk more about computer science because it's a very competitive field. 
lots of people now want to get to graduate uh, studies in computer science because bachelors or there are too many people essentially in bachelors and like for example if you consider the job market in US uh, they generally I mean if you have a PhD from a well-known institute that really can help essentially and you can get higher salaries starting salaries as well. so that's important because of that we get lots of uh, I mean applicants and these are all important things that might be interesting when you applying for uh, top universities and of course I mean there is always there is this things of chance because sometimes for example it may happen that one year the theory group or like the ml group they took too many students or maybe they they admitted uh, lots of students but lots of them accepted the offers so this year we got a lot of students in ml next year unfortunately we may not have enough resources funding etc to have too many people there so if you apply maybe there is nothing wrong with your application but we just don't have that much resources because like, the students are somehow customers. So uh, if you have a customer obsession, this is the word that they are using a lot at Amazon, and I'm using that. So that is important that I mean, we want to give very high quality uh, service to our uh, students. And if we already admitted previous year lots of students, it's hard to admit again lots of students this year. And we, we don't have just enough resources in terms of time, funding, etc. So these are also important criteria that might be uh, interesting. Uh, good. So I think uh, we talk about this one. So I think one final thing I want to just talk about uh, uh, research. I think you have done uh, these uh, things about the parallel computing. I think we discussed maybe briefly. So you have uh, there was this idea of Hiram model that has been used before and more modern way of like MapReduce or Hadoop or Spark now. So do you want to say, uh, I mean, about, like a bit about this as well? Like, how do you compare them? What's your feeling? And what was the history actually in these things? So the, the so-called PRAM model, which is just means parallel RAM. And the, the RAM is the standard model you use in algorithm in algorithms courses, whether it's explicitly mentioned or not. So a PRAM is a very simple notion. You just have a bunch of processes, each of them acting like an ordinary computer, and you have a shared memory. And each of your individual processes is allowed to read and write from this shared memory. And so now what you want to do is to design an algorithm which is going to use all your processes to solve your problem. And the ideal is that if you have P processes, you get a speed up of a factor of P compared to your um, best uh, one, one computer algorithm, your best what's called sequential algorithm. So that, that's always the target. Um, what, what, what amount of speed up can you get? And of course, all other things being equal, you would like to be able to use as much parallelism as possible. So the sort of issues you, you run into is, is this an inherently sequential algorithm? That is, you can't speed it up. You can't make good use of your, your multiple processes. Or is it uh, an algorithm, a problem for which you can make good use? And the, the sort of kind of the other end of the spectrum is what's called embarrassingly parallel which are problems that it's completely obvious how to use your, uh, 
your multiple processes. So this, this model was invented in the mid 1970s, I think. Um, if I'm correct, it was done by James Wiley, but I'm not, not 100% sure about that. In any event, there was a burgeoning of algorithmic research on this, uh, in, in, the, in this domain. The trouble was, it turned out not to be very relevant to the parallel computers that, that were being built at the time. There were other issues of, in particular, of communication delay. Um, you, you, and the, the, the fact that the memory was more distributed than in the, what I just described. Uh, so managing the memory and the communication to and from memory was a much more important issue. And uh, that wasn't really considered by the PRAM model. Now move forward almost, well, 30 years because Hadoop and uh, MapReduce have been around for a while now. And we had a quite different setup in, in the data centers. And here, the idea was that you want that it was the communication that was expensive. And so the way one thought of managing things was you had some amount, you would do um, computation locally on each computer, and then you would have a round of exchanging data between the computers, and you would iterate. And the question was, how few iterations of communication did you need? And that was really the, the complexity measure. The, by comparison, the local computation was cheap. And it turns out that a lot of the algorithmic design techniques are quite similar. Because again, what you're trying to do is to make use of multiple computers processing at the same time. But uh, of course, because the, the models are different, the, the details of the algorithms and the um, complexity bands that you get are, are, are different. But I, I think sort of big picture and well, really big picture. That's not, uh, the, the, the algorithmic techniques have a lot in common. Yeah, uh, good. I think like maybe in short, I mean, about this PRAM concept that like was maybe mainly before 2000 or like, and uh, these, the people consider the processors that generally they were weak processors usually. And uh, also um, they were uniform. And that was the whole concept of PRAM or parallel algorithms before. Now, this was a bit less active, like from 2000 to, I would say, 2010, 2012, or something like this. But then there was this concept of map reviews that now it is also Hadoop and Spark. Now, Spark, almost every company that you will go, you need to know that because these are the only way that you can do big data about them. These are the same concepts. And as you mentioned, these are based on this kind of communication complexity. These are parallel algorithms in addition of, I mean, maybe a little bit more of distributed sense that we are adding to that. Although these are not that much weak computers, the space of, I mean, they might be actually like weak processors. They might be, I mean, quite uh, a strong processor. And they are not necessarily also the same. They might have a different things, but they may do some tasks. And, uh, that is somehow, I would say, the main difference between these two concepts. And 
nowadays every like because of this big data everywhere that you will go you need to use a spark and sometimes this is a resurrection of uh, this concept of parallel algorithm from uh, like before 2000 that it is important the techniques there lots of them actually can be translated to here but uh, they, i think the one other main difference is that uh, like there when we talk about polylogarithmic time and per like per logarithmic number of runs these are the same generally pram and this map reduced model but when we talk about sub logarithmic that might be actually different because if you have a simple xor you need to do log n time in a pram model however in a map reduced or other you can actually do it in one run or like a two runs a constant number of runs that's a interesting things and so this is some area that actually it is nice area because how to be about this with other guests as well but that you may also search about it and there are lots of open problems and nice problems here in this area uh, great so i think uh, anything else you want to talk about anything about research life anything that we didn't cover so far i think we've done a fairly thorough job so nothing comes to mind from my end yeah so i think uh, thanks a lot for i mean uh, coming to these things and again we are putting this one the main goal is that i mean we will put this on uh, archive in a sense youtube here and also instagram as well and this is i think it's good it's somehow it is uh, documenting our life in some sense both in terms of research and in terms of uh, uh, like life some important things some inspiring time for us and hopefully it will be useful i mean for the others that they can see and like we are teaching undergrads and graduate students i think it is good for people to just come and if they want to work with us this is a very this is like the one that we talk about applying for phd if you want to apply for phd i think it would be good to maybe and you want to work for this particular professor it might be good actually to come and take a look at these things that how how what is life what are the type of research that i mean uh, he or she is doing and that will be very helpful for them to consider that and of course if you care about the research what are the interesting things about the research and we try to mention some of this both from industry perspective as well as academic perspective like spark versus map reduce maybe like this. but uh, it, or like if we talk about auction design about advertisement auction about this uh, first price auction that currently is uh, doing for ad exchange uh, versus more theoretical things that how can you find a good market equilibrium in polynomial time that's the whole goal and uh, thanks for coming uh, i think it was great i i always say that i learned a lot from this talk little on other than sure that they, anyone who listened that i mean get good ideas about the research areas and the topics which are important in this area yeah uh, thanks if there is nothing i think we can just end the live here Okay thank you uh, thanks <laughs> bye for now bye